Last week we looked at loving confrontation. How do we handle other people's sin? And we saw that we should care enough and be pained enough and be grieved enough and make ourselves vulnerable enough to approach people in their sin and invite them into forgiveness. This morning we're going to look at the other side, what we do with our own sin, what we would call godly repentance. Now I want to just remind you this morning that for this series we have provided in the back what we've called forgiveness cards, okay? Uh, I know you wouldn't normally find forgiveness cards at Hallmark, and that's why we've made them. Uh, They are effectively just a means for you to be very practical in this, recognize where your relationships are out of focus because of sin uh, and, and to do something about it. And I've provided with that the world's most simple, um, simple guidelines for how to ask for forgiveness. And so if you'd like to make use of those, whether you want to drop it in the mailbox or just hand it to your roommate or just fill it out and hand it to the person sitting in the pew next to you, uh, all of that is totally open. And then even if you're not going to make use of the cards and you'd rather do these types of things in person, uh, grab one of the little instruction sheets and look it through uh, to help you with that. Um, But we need to recognize that the giving of forgiveness or the asking of forgiveness is only one side of the equation. And so this morning we're going to look at repentance. And as we do so, as we look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, I want to lay some context this morning. And the first is uh, that in Christianity, repentance is a big deal. Okay? And I'm saying that because we see that in the ministry of Jesus himself. The summary that the uh, synoptic gospels use for the entire message of Jesus Christ is repent. That's how they sum it up. Jesus went around from village to village saying, repent for the kingdom of God has come. Okay. Repentance was the major message of his forerunner, John the Baptist. And we find it also in his apostles. But oftentimes we have a hard time relating faith and repentance. To the degree that when we read a passage like we do this morning, it seems like the good news, the gospel, the cross, Jesus is completely absent. So I want to just explain up front the relationship between faith and repentance. And there's a lot of ways we could misunderstand this relationship, but here's, I think, the best way to think about it. Faith and repentance really talks about the same thing from two different angles. Faith is about what you're turning to, And repentance is about what you're turning from. You really can't do one without the other. As C.S. Lewis put it, he said, he said, it's not that repentance is required to return to God. Repentance describes what returning to God is. It's the way that we go back. And so repentance is effectively turning away from certain things. Faith is turning unto God, but they're really just two different perspectives on the same happening, okay? Now, that's really important if you're a Christian this morning because it means, since you know that without faith it is impossible to please God, since you know the Christian life is to be one of continuous growing faith, then it shouldn't be any surprise to us that without repentance it's impossible to please God, that the Christian life is one of continual growing repentance, I mentioned last week that Martin Luther got it right. He hit the nail on the head when he opened his 95 theses saying the Christian life is one of continuous repentance. 
If you're making progress in the Christian life, if you're growing as a Christian, repentance is the way you grow. Okay? So it's very important for us to understand these things this morning, and it's also something we shouldn't be afraid of, because those two things go hand in hand. Because of what Jesus has done, because forgiveness is available, repentance is possible. Repentance is significant. Repentance is, uh, is good and not bad. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's fun. That's another thing that I love that C.S. Lewis says about repentance. He opens his passage on repentance saying, now, repentance is no fun at all. <laughs> and I think that's true. And we need to recognize that. But, the, but just because something is difficult doesn't mean, as many of us know, that it's not good. So if you would, open up your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're joining us and you didn't bring a Bible this morning in the back of the pew in front of you, um, you should find a black Bible. There's an index at the front. We'll be in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Before we read our verses this morning, let's remember the context of what's happening here. Paul, the author of our letter we're reading this morning, um, has written a letter we don't have to a church he planted in a city called Corinth. And he's written this letter to lovingly confront them for the sin that's come between them and Paul. And it's a letter that he knew would grieve them. He knew it would bring them pain, but he says here that the pain was worth it because it brought about its right and proper response, which is repentance. And so last week we focused on Paul's heart in these things. And this week we're going to focus on the Corinthian church's response, and he tells us about it beginning in verse 9. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Let's pray. God, I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and own up to the fact that we as a people right now right here, are in need of repentance. That there are places in our life that are incongruent with the goodness and the perfection of your will. Uh, that there are relationships in our lives that remain broken because our behavior continues. I also want to go out on a limb, what we would call faith, and trust the fact that you really did something significant about our sin that you not only called for there to be consequences, that you not only in your holy character demanded judgment, but that you also provided uh, a means so that that judgment would be taken care of 
so that our guilt would be dealt with, so that our sentence would be served and we could be freely forgiven. I ask, Lord, that as we look at repentance this morning, you would give us eyes to see the difference between worldly sorrow and godly grief and to recognize the fruits of repentance, both so that we can rejoice uh, where we see them in our lives and so that we can sow, uh, sow a new crop of repentance, of true repentance in our lives so that we can truly experience, as Paul calls it, a salvation never to be regretted. I ask that you would help us this morning by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice this morning that he starts talking about grief or sorrow or pain. And he contrasts two categories, one he calls worldly grief and the other he calls godly grief, okay? Now, notice there is no other option on the table. He assumes that the result or the consequence of sinful behavior is going to be painful. That's true one way or the other. Now, we don't always recognize that because oftentimes uh, sin is in, uh, inevitably in the beginning sweet, enjoyable, desirable, right? We find ourselves like Eve before she's tasted of the fruit, looking at the tree and going, it's beautiful, it looks tasty, uh, it has good consequences, uh, and there's always a deception involved in sin. Like we talked about last week, uh, sin begins in joy and turns to sorrow, whereas repentance begins in sorrow and turns to joy, okay? Um, but he contrasts here two different types of responses, two different types of pain or grief, uh, and they lead in very different places. He says here that worldly grief leads to death, and godly grief uh, produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Now, we are probably right then to ask, okay, well, what's the difference? But before we do so, I want you um, I want you to notice something right up front. Oftentimes the way we talk about guilt, which is clearly an aspect of this sorrow that we're talking about, right? That would be the psychological pain caused by our sins, mistakes, trespasses, etc. The way we talk modernly about guilt, we often assume that guilt is somehow purifying. That it does something in particular. That effectively, guilt is the serving of sentence. It is uh, the consequences. And so uh, we can do this in a couple of different ways. But effectively, we need to recognize here that uh, there is a difference between sorrow and repentance. In fact, I think we should recognize this morning the difference between the word penitent and the word repentant. Okay. which actually in their origin have a lot in common. But in modern English use, usage, if somebody is penitent, that is an emotion. That is a response. They feel sorry. But he here talks about that sorrow and says there's two different kinds, one that leads to repentance. So the first thing I want us to notice this morning is that means that the sorrow is not in and of itself repentance. Even if it's godly sorrow, it's not in and of itself repentance. Repentance is something different, okay? And so we have to watch out for this, this sense that the punish, or that, that what guilt is, is punishment. 
that, the, that me feeling this way is God's judgment. No, what Paul is saying here is that our lives are uniquely designed so that doing the wrong thing produces pain for a reason. Okay? In the same way that you have nerves in your fingers so when you touch something hot, you stop, right? It drives you to do something. It's to lead you away from something, and as we see this morning, to lead you unto something, okay? In other words, guilt is like an alarm system. It tells you something is wrong. It tells you relationships are broken. It tells you there's something between you and God that needs to be dealt with. But nonetheless, in and of itself, it is not repentance. So what is the difference here between a godly grief that produces repentance and a worldly grief? Now let me just state the obvious. One of them leads to repentance, right? That's the difference, okay? If you continue to sit in your grief, let me give you an illustration. I can say with full honesty this morning, I did not see this film, and I'm pretty sure I didn't miss out. But maybe you remember the comedy film Year One from a while ago, okay? Good, most of you didn't see it. I'm sure it's not worth seeing. But I remember seeing the trailer, and in the trailer, they portray the murder of Abel. You remember the story from Genesis? So there's these two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve, and one of them is accepted by God in his sacrifice. The other is rejected, and out of that comes jealousy, and out of that jealousy comes hatred, and out of that hatred comes murder. And so what happens in the trailer for year one is you see, uh, you see, Abel thrown to the ground and Cain get on top of him with a rock and he strikes him and as soon as he's hit him and he's laying there bloodied, he kind of comes to himself and he begins to cry and he says, oh, my brother, my brother, what have I done? Oh, please forgive me. And then his brother starts to stir and he grabs the rock again and he hits him a few more times, okay? I think that's a good illustration of what we're talking about this morning, that we are fully capable, we're multifaceted enough we can be hypocritical enough to feel bad and continue to do the same thing. Okay? So that would fall into the category of what we're talking about. But it's more than that. Okay? When, when sin leads to death, which is what the Bible says it always does, not just in the big consequence of eternal punishment, but also in the fact, the fact that it causes relationships to die, that it, that it does something in and to us, that it corrupts. When we experience that, we can be sorry for many, many reasons. We can be grieved for many reasons, okay? And so, for example, there is the worldly sorrow, which is basically, I'm so sorry about the consequences of what I've done. We see a really good illustration of this in a king named Saul. Saul starts in a place where he's afraid of people. He's afraid of what people think of him. And even when he becomes king and he has some victories and he has some respect, that's still there. And he finds himself in a place where his armies are grumbling and nervous about this war that's about to happen. And he knows that he can't take his battle position until a sacrifice has been offered, as according to the law. But Samuel, the only one who can do that, isn't here yet, and the army on the other side is growing. So his generals are coming to him and going, if we don't attack now, 
we're going to lose our opportunity. We're going to be outnumbered. We have to get while the getting's good. And he holds off and he holds off and eventually he goes, you know what, I'm just going to offer the sacrifice and he does so. And Samuel comes up and he talks to him. He says, what's, what's going on here? And he's like, well, you didn't come, blah, blah, blah. And this is, this is square one. But, but the, the first step that Saul takes in the wrong direction, which does come with consequence, has to do with the fear of other people. And the second time what happens is he has this great victory. And he's been told that everything needs to be completely wiped out, completely given to God. None of it's to be kept. And so he comes, here comes Samuel up the mountain. It's just like the other time. And Saul walks up to him. He's like, I've done everything you told me to do. We've had great victory. You know, let's get out of here. And he goes, if you've done everything, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep, right? And he goes, well, the people thought it'd be okay if we kept the sheep to sacrifice later to God. And it's this whole thing. But what happens next is really important. Samuel goes, it breaks my heart to tell you this, Saul, but this is the end. This is the end of your rule. God is appointing another king in your place. And the response is what I want to draw your attention to. Here, the kingdom is ripped away from Saul. He feels the full results. And he says, okay, okay, but please come and recognize me before the people. That's, that's fine. The kingdom is gone. But, but let's just, for appearance's sake, right, all he really cares about is not what he did, but the consequence of how it affects his reputation. And so he wants to try and maintain his reputation intact. That would be worldly sorrow. Another version of this is, <coughs> is I'm sorry that I got caught. Right? It recognizes that now everybody sees what's happened. Now the consequences are there, and you feel the weight of that. But what you really feel the weight of is, once again, the consequences. Okay? Now, it's worth pointing out that there are versions of this that can be very deep and very long. Then another version of worldly sorrow, um, well, actually, let's go back to Cain. So Cain, God comes to me and says, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And he says, because of what you've done, the earth's not going to yield for you anymore. You're going to be in exile on the earth. You're going to leave your family. And how does Cain respond? He says, this punishment is too much to bear. That's where the focus is. He goes, wait, that's too much to ask. In fact, it's, it's so enlightening what he says next. He says, anyone who finds me will kill me. Right? That wasn't so significant a second ago when he took a life for himself, but now he feels the fear of his own life being taken. Right, His own life still weighs higher on the Richter scale than the life that he's taken. Okay? That doesn't mean he's not sorry. And so we also see a worldly sorrow that, that wallows in its sorrow. Take Judas, for example. Now, really, what Judas does to Jesus, betraying him and leading, leading these enemies of Christ to him in the garden to turn him over, to be crucified, is a terrible thing, but it's only slightly more terrible than what Peter does. Peter, who saves his own neck by distancing, distancing himself from Jesus and saying, oh, I've never met the guy. I don't know him. Cursing and swearing to prove that he doesn't know Jesus. 
But the outcomes of the stories are very different, aren't they? How does it end with Peter? He's restored to his apostleship and goes on to be a representative of Jesus. What happens to Judas? He goes out and he hangs himself. Now, what we have to understand, what we have to understand is we as human beings are very capable of maintaining our own control by being our own jailer, by serving our own sentence. Repentance, in some ways, means to release control. Sin is effectively when we take the reins, when we make ourselves our own God, when we make ourselves our own choices, when we determine what's best for us. And when we hold on to that and we continue to do that, and now we're just punishing ourselves. Now we're just limiting things, but we're keeping it in our control. It's the same thing. I've mentioned this before, but I have a close friend who I was counseling for a while years ago who had been cutting for years. And it was so frustrating talking with her because we would just go around and around in the same circles. And I don't accuse her of anything in that. It was probably my own limitations, but I just felt like I couldn't get through to her. And so after months and months of talking to her about these things and, and the what-ifs and the yeah-buts and these types of things, uh, I was having a conversation with her, and I finally just got really frustrated. Because I, I had just gone, you know, look, Jesus took the punishment for your sin. Why do you feel the need to punish yourself? And we just kept going the circles, and I got frustrated. And I said, you know what? You do this because you're your own God. And by rejecting that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, you say you know better what's right or wrong. You know better than God what you deserve, and so you meet that out. I said, that is idolatry. You've made yourself God, and you are a shitty God. Forgive me for the language. I'm just quoting. I'm quoting myself, so I guess I can't get away from it. But that's what I said, because I was angry. I was upset. I said, look at what you're doing to yourself. And she woke up, and she saw it for the first time. You see, we are totally capable of a sorrow that has nothing to do with God. It's how the consequences impact me. It's how I feel about my own behavior. When he says here a worldly sorrow, effectively what he means is a sorrow without reference to God. And he says the way of that is death. Now the reason why the way is death is because sin leads to death. And you're continuing in it. You may change your behavior. You may turn away from one practice and turn to another. You know what another form of worldly sorrow is? It's religion. It's self-righteousness. It says, okay, I'm not going to be that person anymore. I can be better than that person. I'm going to do this and this and this to make up for it. And let's just recognize this morning that that can look a good deal like repentance, at least from the outside. But when it comes with a standing of arrogance and I'm going to set this right, and I'm going to fix this. Even, even the sorrow that says what I've done is unforgivable is worldly sorrow. It says, I don't want God to accept me unless I earn it. And the message of the gospel, the one that calls us to repentance, 
the one that Jesus not only preached but, made, but accomplished with his life and death. The whole point is not merely just to deal with our sin but to bring us back to God. To restore the relationship. Repentance is possible because forgiveness is real. Okay? In fact, Paul says in another letter that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Okay? If God was truly vindictive and judgmental and there was no way out, then repentance would be irrelevant. If hell is where I'm headed, then what option do I have? What difference does it make? No, repentance is a response to the reality of forgiveness. That there really is life still possible. That there really is a restoration. That there really is a way to fix things. A road back to God. And so in contrast here, a godly sorrow is one that doesn't just lead us away from our sin, but leads us to God. A godly sorrow is one that brings God into our mess, fully and honestly. A godly sorrow is one that recognizes the profound words of David in the Psalms. Now David had done a handful of atrocities. He'd committed an adult, adultery, and not just adultery, but with the wife of one of his generals who was out on the battlefield while this whole thing goes down. And then to cover it up because she gets pregnant, come up with a plot, a conspiracy, so that he dies on the front lines, so that he can marry her quickly, and people won't be able to count the months and go, wait a minute. And at first he gets away with it, but not with God. So God sends Nathan, this prophet, to address his sin, and he responds to it. And in contrast to Saul, we see something very different. David's not concerned about his own reputation. He writes a psalm and puts it in the psalm book of Israel so that they understand what happens. And one of the things he says in it, in the opening line, is against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Now, that's not a complete statement, right? There's a corpse that might disagree, right? There were people involved that got hurt. But what he's doing is recognizing the ultimate nature of sin, which is that all sin is ultimately against the God who created us, against the God who created those we sin against, against the God who created the good world that we destroy with our actions. That's what he means. That orientation is godly sorrow. He's not grieved because of the consequence of his sin, except in the fact that he's grieved because he's grieved God. He says here that godly sorrow produces repentance. And as I said earlier, repentance is effectively the other half of faith, that one is turning unto Jesus, and that implies a turning away from other things. Let me stress this metaphor to you this morning, because sometimes, sometimes there's this misunderstanding of Christianity that basically says faith is possible without any change in life. I just have to believe in Jesus, I just trust in him, and it doesn't really matter what I do or do not do. Okay. But this is what that's like. It's like walking in whatever direction you're heading, on whatever road you're heading, and running into Jesus. Understanding who he is, understanding his invitation, and how does he put it throughout the Gospels? Come and follow me. And he goes and off and walks, and you go, oh, now I believe in Jesus, and you keep walking down the same road. It's impossible. You cannot continue 
and follow Jesus. You can't go your own way and go the way of Christ. If you really trust him, if you really believe in him, then you will change your behavior. Now, there's another aspect we need to recognize here, which is that repentance is not merely something that we do. It's also something that God does in us. Okay? That's another thing that makes repentance possible. Once again, to point to C.S. Lewis, he says the challenge of repentance is it's something that only a good man can do, and it's also something a good man doesn't need to do. Right? If we could just naturally turn away from our sins, we would have done it already. If we could just stop doing the wrong thing, then why did Jesus have to die at all? He says, but what God has done in the gospel is effectively he's done the part we can't do for us. Jesus doesn't just offer us a second chance of forgiveness. He offers us a part of himself. He enables us to repent. And once again, that's what grants the hope that's needed for repentance. Because we really can change. Once again, I mean, just, just hear the metaphor here, even in that word change. What do we possibly mean when we say that somebody can change? Now, inherently, in and of themselves, of course they can't. If they could, then they're not changing at all. They're just being themselves. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is that he's enabled a way to empower us to obedience. But that obedience looks like following Jesus. It doesn't look like choosing our own road. Like I said, one good way to think about sin is an act of rebellion or an act of control. And so what is repentance? Repentance is surrender. In fact, this isn't the best time to do this, but it's worth addressing. Here's something I found about repentance. Oftentimes we narrow it down, okay? And so we think, okay, repentance is dealing with a single wrong, a single fail, a single sin, and dealing with that. And we just set this one thing right. I have found in my own life that repentance is always holistic. That it's not just changing one behavior or changing one way of thinking or fixing one relationship. It is a wholehearted, complete surrender all over again. It is broad. It's a turning back to God. Now, what I want to focus on with our time this morning is first, we see these two different sorrows. One leads to repentance, but what I want you to notice here is that he goes on and he describes their repentance. He gives us all of these words to describe it, right? What eagerness, what diligence, what anger, what fear, what punishment. This seems to me to be familiar or to similar to what John the Baptist encourages his audience when he preaches to do, when he says, bear fruit worthy or corresponding to repentance. Okay. Repentance looks, okay? Uh, now, the word to repent, metanoia in the Greek, it just means to change your mind. That's what it literally means. That's just what the words mean. But we cannot actually and truly change our mind without changing our words, without changing our direction, without changing our purpose, without changing our actions, okay? And so repentance in and of itself is this invisible thing. The fruit of repe repentance are these tangible proofs. And once again, let me make a clarification. We talked about the difference between repentance and penitent. Let's talk about the difference between repentance and penance, okay? 
penance is this idea of, okay, you're, uh, you can come back to God, but you need to do these things to get there. And we can mistake repentance for that. Repentance becomes our way of buying back God's forgiveness, of proving our obedience, of earning our salvation, of dealing with our own guilt. But once again, penance is unnecessary because the punishment has been fully paid. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Lord, if there be any other way possible, let this cup pass from me. And it's one of the clear proofs in the New Testament that we cannot understand the ministry of Jesus apart from the Old Testament. Because if you look around and you look for a cup, you're not going to find it. To understand the cup that Jesus is talking about, you have to go to the prophets. And the prophets talk about one particular cup, the cup of God's unadulterated, full strength to the brim wrath. The right and deserved consequence of sin. When Jesus prays in the garden, he's recognizing that, as we saw a few chapters ago in 2 Corinthians, that he who knew no sin was going to become sin and therefore bear the full consequence of the punishment that we deserve in our lives. But at the end of the cross, after those six hours on a hillside in Israel, Jesus says something else. He says, it's finished. There is no wrath left for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is, as Paul puts it in Romans, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no punishment left to be deserved. There is no purgatory. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to the dregs and there's not a drop left for those who are in Christ. So we have to be careful here. Repentance is not our payment to come back. It's our response to the fact that God has brought us back. But it will change your life. It will look like something. Let's go through the list here. He says in verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Paul, all he has is looking from the outside and he goes, How do I know that you've repented? How do I know that you'll never regret this? How do I know that this is the road that leads to salvation? The first thing he says is, look at how diligent you are. Okay? The idea of earnestness or diligence here uh, is attentive obedience. Okay? In other words, we never go back to God dragging our feet. When you really understand what God has offered in Jesus Christ, what repentance looks like is never slow drudgery. It's not, well, I guess if I'm going to set things right, I have to go back to church. And so you, you show up and you drag yourself through and you're still carrying your guilt. You haven't actually experienced repentance. You're just trying to earn your forgiveness. But he knows that this is real because there's a diligence in it. It's not merely that they know that they can't escape God's will. They desire to do it. Read Psalm 51. Look at the change that happens in David's heart. There's a restoration in relationship that leads to diligence. Notice the second one he says. He says, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. Eagerness to clear yourselves is a bunch of English words for only one Greek word there in the text, and it's the word apologia. 
okay, where we get our English word apology. Now, to be fair, it means more than just apology in our English setting, okay? And so maybe you're familiar, maybe you've uh, been around Christianity long enough to encounter apologetics, right? Apologetics isn't the science of saying sorry to other people about Christianity. It's providing an account, a defense, an explanation, evidence for Christianity. Most of the time, the way apologia is used in the New Testament, it's translated that word defense, okay? But what does it mean here? Does it mean that they've gone, well, I know I did the wrong thing, but let me explain to you what the other person was. No, that's clearly not what this is, right? We talked about last week the fact that, uh, or in these instructions, we talk about the fact uh, that when you ask for forgiveness, you make no excuses. You deal only with your own sin and not with the sin of other people. The idea here of make a defense is rightly understood by the ESV when they translate it, what eagerness to clear yourselves. In other words, they want to restore the relationships that are broken. They seek reconciliation. They go to those they've hurt. They own up honestly and humbly to their own sin. They ask to be forgiven, forgiven. And then they don't just leave it at that, dust off their hands and walk away. They begin to pour into the relationship. What I'm saying here is sometimes repentance looks like reconciliation. It looks like restored relationships. And Paul sees that. He sees that happening. He receives this letter back that expresses their great desire for Paul. And so he knows that it's true. He knows that it's the real deal. He continues on and he says, uh, what indignation. He uses a word here for anger. And indignation, by the way, is a type of anger that's usually tied to hatred. That seems strange. How can repentance look like hatred? This is a hatred of the sin itself. When we talk about repentance being a change of mind, it means it changes the way you think. Not just about your behavior, but the broad category of your behavior. A friend of mine, Tyler, Travis Tyler, uh, he goes by the name Thistle. He's a rapper uh, in St. Louis. And he was a drug dealer for most of his life until he met Jesus. And he has a song called Cocaine, I Hate You. Right? The way he feels about crack has changed. He hasn't gone from it's good to indifference. He's gone from it's good to hatred. In the song, he just, he just lays out how he longs for this stuff to be eradicated off the earth so it no longer destroys lives even though it was his livelihood and promised him all of this wealth and good and it's not that he didn't get it he got it in spades but at what cost true repentance creates a repulsion against our own sin a hatred now this is an important point because for many of us there are certain things in our life where we go I don't know if my repentance is real because I find myself doing it again. How many times is the forgiveness really available until it goes, well, clearly I haven't repented because I'm continuing in my way. Listen, the way the Bible talks about the Christian life in regards to our own sin is like warfare. It's like a battle. It's like a fight, okay? The presence of Christ working in us is that we're fighting. The victory is to come, but it's not a time of peace. 
And one of the things that we experience in true repentance, even with ongoing struggles and habits, even with sin that seems to so easily ensnare us, as the author of Hebrews says, is a true hatred of that sin. It's not, I'm going to get as much on the side as I can get away with. It's not, well, I've only got one life to do what I want to do, so I'm going to. No, it really is, as Paul puts it, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I want to do, those are the things I do not do. Oh, wretched man that I am. It's a fight, it's a struggle, and it comes with hatred. Why do you think it is that so many people have done terrible, terrible things and get caught in it and then they devote their lives to to playing for the other team, to opposing those things, to seeking to eradicate them? That's true repentance. He goes on and he says, what fear? And that's one that might surprise you. If, you're, if you know your Bibles, it says that, there, uh, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind, right? And so how is it that fear is something that Paul applauds here? Maybe you know that it says in the uh, letters that John wrote that perfect love casts out fear. In other words, when we're in a right and proper relationship with God, it's a relationship without fear. But this is talking about a wholesome version of fear, okay? It's an apprehension about our own weakness, about our own vulnerability, okay? The thing is, when we're walking in sin, we're careless, we're not careful, okay? We don't see something as dangerous, but true repentance means that you will set boundaries, you will make distance, you will be afraid of being ensnared by the same thing. Okay, one of the things that people often get wrong about Christianity is they think that ultimately sin is just reducible to choices and actions. And so the solution then is just make better choices and do better things. But the Bible says that sin goes deeper than that. That there's an insider drawing you to sin. What Paul sometimes calls the old man or the flesh. That there's a part of who you are that is inherently bent at the desire level. This fear is the healthy fear that has a little bit of trepidation about that, that recognizes that in some ways and sometimes you're your own worst enemy. It's alertness. That's what's being talked about that he's seeing in them, that they are careful, that they know that things could be around every corner. Think of a, think of a phobia, which is, by the way, what this word is, phobos. Okay. Changes the way you look around corners. It's something active in your mind. That's what he means. He says, look at the way that you now are trying to keep these things at a distance. What fear? He continues on here. He says, what longing? Now, he doesn't tell us the who of that. What longing? Is this longing for Paul? Is this longing for God? We're not told. It's just a very word, or it's a word for very strong desire. But I think it's best for us to understand this here um, in a broad sense, okay? We already saw with uh, what defense you made, what eagerness to clear yourself, a restoration of relationship. So let's talk about the side that involves God. What, What longing to be close to Jesus, okay? I heard it put this way once, and I've always appreciated it, that Christianity is not a boundary set religion. It's a center set religion. 
In other words, we don't think about, okay, here's the border, here's the fence, here's the ditch, and we just need to not cross into that. Then anytime we're thinking that way, we're forgetting really the focal point of Christianity, which is Christ. It's not boundary set, it's center set, which means here is Jesus, how can I draw closer to him? And obviously, if you're drawing closer to the center, you'll be moving away from the boundary, but the focal point is different. True repentance is a hunger for Christ, not just a fear of punishment, not even just a fear of sin itself, but a desire to draw near. And once again, that speaks of the profound reality of what God does. Because what does sin do? It creates distance, it creates hiding, it pushes us away from God. That's why some of us, even this morning, have really tepid, cold, distant relationships with God. And we go, I, I don't know, I'm just going through a season. Are you? Or is there something that you're entertaining in your life? Something that you're grieving maybe even over, but you're grieving on your own and haven't brought God into it that's maintaining it at a, at a distance? When you really are in right and proper standing with God, when you really are in the light and see him for who he is, what is the clear and obvious response? It's joy. It's love. It's desiring to spend time with him. If you still have guilt in your heart and the Bible just becomes this condemning book that you're afraid to open because it will remind you of what's wrong. But if it's dealt with, then it becomes this source this place that tells you all about the God you love and you want to read it. What longing is produced in repentance? He adds here what zeal. It makes you zealous. In the book of Revelation, there's these seven letters that start the book, each written to a church in modern-day Turkey. And one of them, he calls the church of Ephesus to he says, you've left, left your first love. And then he counsels them to do the works they did at first. Not only is repentance a continuous part of the Christian life, but it's also the beginning of the Christian life. For some of you, do you remember what that was like? Do you remember who you became? Do you remember the things that you did? Not because anyone told you to, not because you have to, but you were just overwhelmed and overflowing with zeal, with desire, with fervency. Repentance restores that. And notice the last one here. What punishment? Now, it may be here, it may be that that word is speaking um, speaking about the fact that one of the things that stood between Paul and the church in Corinth was that they had some church discipline they needed to do. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They had this man whose life was incongruent with the gospel and they had been kind of indifferent, afraid to take a stand and say, hey, either this needs to change or you can't be with us. And now they've done the right thing and responded to that. There's good reason to believe that. Even if you read back in chapter 2, he says, look, the guy's repented. So let him back into the church. Restore your love for him. Encourage him. The whole point of this was reconciliation. Now you have it. He's left behind this thing. He felt the weight of his sin, and he's removed it from his shoulders, so invite him back into the church. It may be that's what's being talked about here. So it's worth pointing out that sometimes, sometimes repentance looks like discipline. 
that some of the ways that we sin against God is that we are indifferent to the sins of others. Jesus speaks about the need for forgiveness very strongly. And he basically says, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. And it's easy to read that and just go, okay, so then is unforgiveness the unforgivable sin? And you just just read the rest of the scriptures and see that's not what he means. But clearly, unforgiveness is something to be repented of. So sometimes there has to be discipline. Sometimes there has to be punishment. What this word means is actually a pretty broad word. It just means what seeking of justice. Okay? The setting of rights. The restoring, the dismantling of systems. Okay? Seeing the big picture, it's all implied here. And then notice what he says at the end. At every point you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Now I can't, but, I can't believe but that Paul is using that language with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. The idea here is not, oh, I guess I was wrong, you weren't the problem. He just says, he just says, the slate is clean. It's clear. It's been completely removed. He says, you've proven yourself to be, I would translate this, forgiven. Restored. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, the London preacher from a few centuries ago, who said that real repentance becomes more notorious than the sin they repented of. That you're known not for the sin anymore, but for the repentance of that sin. And obviously there's circles of that. If you've embezzled a bunch of money and you go to jail and you're on the five o'clock news, that looks like one thing. If you've hurt your relationship in your household with your child or with your spouse or with your sibling, it's not going to look the same, but it will to them, right? What we see here is a list of fruit of repentance, and I want you to notice a couple of things. One, it involves a lot of emotion, longing and zeal and fear and anger. It's complex, but it's happening at the deepest level of who we are as emotional beings, It's not just putting on a face. It's not just going through the emotions. It's not stemmed by outside at all. It's not driven by consequences or what people think. In fact, a lot of times, repentance will put you in embarrassing situations. But you won't care. Because you're driven internally by this change in your heart that the Bible calls repentance. The second thing I want you to notice is how holistic it is. Like I said earlier, it's not just no longer doing the thing. It's a complete re-altering of your priorities. It's a complete reorganization of your life. It's a restoring of other things that were left undone. It's a beginning of new things. In fact, that's another thing that I think we should get right this morning. The Bible doesn't see, going back to that boundary set idea, just a bunch of things you shouldn't do. And then you do them, and then you realize you're doing them, you feel guilty, you take them before the Lord, and you're forgiven, and you no longer do them. There's always another side. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul uses the metaphor of clothing, and so he says, put off the old behavior and put on new behavior. And they always go hand in hand. 
That gives us another guideline of what repentance looks like. Let me read you some examples from Ephesians chapter 4. And so he's talking about here the gospel in Jesus, as you've heard the gospel in Jesus, and he says in 4.22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So it's not stop lying it's also enter into honesty. He continues here. Look at the next one. He says, uh, actually, let's jump down a little bit for another clear one so I don't have to exegete. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Not just don't steal, but work hard so that you can be generous. Do you see how holistic that change is? Repentance is not just stopping going the wrong road. It's walking a new road entirely, usually an opposite road. It's moving in the different direction, being driven by different desires. Okay. The last thing I want to say this morning is Paul says that this leads to a repentance not to be regretted. Now, he's probably saying that in two different ways. He's already said, I at first regretted sending you this sorrowful letter because it would make you sorrowful, but I don't regret it anymore. And so he may be just tying it back to that and saying, because it brought about a repentance that I do not regret. The sorrow was worth it for the life that it produced in you. But it's also very possible here that he's making a play on ideas and he was basically talking about a repentance not to be repented of. Okay. That effectively, this isn't just a fruit from the outside to the observer where we can discern the difference between false or incomplete and true repentance. But it also is unregrettable to us that we experience it without regret. It's another sign of repentance. In other words, the thing that I want to stress this morning is that this thing which comes with the, but what about the consequences? And if I really do with, deal this rightly, you know, it gets out of my hands, you know. If you've committed a crime, oftentimes repentance looks like fessing up to the crime. And the consequences can be serious. But you cannot repent and hold the reins at the same time. When you bring things into the light, you bring other people into the equation, and that means you put yourself out of control. And that's right, and that's proper, but that's re what repentance is. But that doesn't mean it's regrettable. It doesn't mean you go, oh, I wish I had never tried to deal with this. Why? Because it brings about salvation. And not just in the long run of the fact that you still get to go to heaven, that your eternal life is not in jeopardy. In the present tense reality of what salvation is, which is life, And for some of us, we've tasted this before. We may have forgotten. We may have things, you know, in the, in the inbox of our lives that we've not moved to the outbox, things that we have not confessed or repented or brought to the light. 
but we have, we have our records. We have our history. We've been here before. We've seen what God can do. We know who he really is. And ultimately, before your personal records, there's the great fact of the crucifixion of Jesus. It'd be one thing to have to bring your sins to a God who is merely just. But we bring our sins to a God who is just and loving and has demonstrated that in paying the penalty up front, in freely inviting us, in pursuing us, in saying all is forgiven. Let's close this morning by just reflecting on the parable that Jesus tells that we often call the parable of the prodigal son. Here's the son and he comes to his dad and he goes, Dad, I want the inheritance now. I don't want the farm that you've built. I don't want the family I have. I just want the money and I want to go and live my own life as I see fit. And the father gives him the money and he goes and he lives prodigally, which means wastefully. He spends and spends and spends and he makes some friends because he's got a lot of money and he does all the things he wants and then he runs out of money. And on top of that, the place, this foreign, foreign country he's living in, uh, is going through its own economic crisis. It's experiencing a famine. So there's no possibilities, no help, and he sells himself into servitude, feeding pigs. And his life is so bad in this place of service that he looks at what the pigs are eating and he wishes he could eat it. And one day he comes to himself and he goes, wait a minute, even my dad's servants eat better than this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to say, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but just let me work in your house. Let me just start at the bottom rung again. Let me just be your servant because at least you're a better master than the one I chose for myself. And so he goes on the road and he keeps rehearsing this speech. And it says that his father was looking out the window and saw him from afar and he ran to him and he embraced him and he said, my son, my son who was dead is alive. And his son started to try and talk and say, dad, look, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And he says, shush, hush. And he says, go kill the fatted calf. We're celebrating the fact that my son is alive. Go bring him shoes, bring him my signet ring, which is how he would have handled business, right? That is the father that's waiting for us. That is the reception at home. I would just feel like I wasn't doing my job if I didn't warn us all this morning about the nature of worldly sorrow, about the reality that we can be right on the fringe of repentance and never experience it, that we can go through all of the motions, that we can appear totally fine from the outside, that we can feel really bad about what we're doing, and that we might even be here this morning to try and pay the price ourselves. That way leads to death. Because it leaves you in death. Repentance is full and wholehearted and often hard, and sometimes it will drastically change your life, but it leads to life.
because it leads back to the God who is life. Let's pray. Father, the way your word describes sin is scary because it says that it makes us callous, insensitive, insensitive to the way we hurt other people, insensitive to the way we're destroying our own lives, insensitive to the seriousness of our sin, insensitive to you entirely. And it's also scary because it makes us blind. And so we can continue on in this way and not actually see things as they really are, justify and excuse and explain away. And any time we get to repentance, it's because you've done the gracious act of revealing to us what's really going on. And so it's scary, but I ask that as we worship you this morning, that you would pull back the veil on our own hearts. We pray with bold confidence like David did, search our hearts this morning and know us. See if there's any wrong in us. But we pray knowing that you are a good surgeon, a heart doctor who can remove the cancer. So we're not afraid of the detection. And we come both, both in fear, but also in hope. And I pray, Lord, for those who are right now in a season of repentance, that you would open their eyes to the fullness of what this looks like, that they wouldn't settle for just a behavior modification or setting a couple of boundaries, but that, that this would be transformative in their life, that their relationship with you would be renewed and restored, that their relationships with others would be reconciled, that they would live in the joy of your spirit. And if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet a Christian, just very quickly, I want to give you the ABCs of what it looks like to follow Christ. First, you have to accept what the Bible says about you, which is that the problems that you have inherent in and of yourself, your rebellion and your sin is greater than you realize and out of your hands, too big for you to fix. And then you need to be, believe what the Bible says that Jesus Christ accomplished for you. That he lived the perfect life that you could not live, that he died the death that you deserve, and that he rose again proving the validity of that action and inviting you into forgiveness. And see, you have to commit. You have to commit to following him. You have to repent. If you'd like to do that this morning, you can begin that process now. God stands with his arms open, inviting you to respond. But it's not something that's going to be compartmentalized into your life, become another part of your identity. It's not something you can keep to yourself and privatize. It's going to radically change your life. And so I would encourage you to respond this morning and then begin to tell even those around you who you may not have met this morning. Invite them in to help you. Father, for all of us, I ask that as we worship, Lord, we would really be struck by your goodness this morning and your grace and your love. 
and that our mouths would be filled with praises. We ask this in your name. Amen.